0: Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Modern House podcast. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of the Modern House. My guest today is the designer Jay Osgoby. As one half of the celebrated design duo Barber Osgoby, Jay has turned his artful hands everything from furniture to lighting, glassware, and most famously perhaps the Olympic torch for London 2012. Meanwhile, he's worked on hotels, restaurants and galleries through his interiors practice, Universal Design Studio, and on techie things like artificial intelligence and augmented reality via his industrial design company, which is called Map Project Office. It's no wonder he's going grey. Sorry, Jay, you're not the only one, to be honest. As is customary on this podcast, I've asked Jay to pick his three favourite living spaces from throughout history – so that we can debate their success and try to learn a few things that we might be able to apply to our own homes. Needless to say, his choices are as diverse and multifaceted as his own work. Happy listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Jay, welcome to the podcast. So let's set the scene. We're recording this in the studios of Universal and MAP. Yes, that's right. Hello, nice Good. to see you. In person. In person. So well, exactly. It's worth saying, isn't it, that we we have had an aborted attempt at this podcast already. So we, mm. during lockdown, yeah. tried this digitally right. and um, the technology failed us. So yeah. it's actually really good to, well, I to see say, you in person instead. It's much I would just better. like to say to the listeners, actually, that the one that we did during lockdown was
1: fantastic wasn't it it, it was, was one amazing of the best,
0: yes one of the best podcasts I'd ever spoken it about. was unbelievably good yeah. and the thing is I've got the script here have you yeah have you so I just always read it out okay let's do that <laughs> you play me and I'll play you yeah okay let's do it so as you know this is a podcast all about the home so let's just start by taking you back to your beginnings of home and your upbringing tell us a little bit about that what kind of environment did you grow up in
1: well I grew up in a small town outside Oxford and my parents when I was really young, I think I was about two, bought two cottages on the A40 and knocked them together. So I think my earliest memories are of my parents trying to do a project. It was unconventional in a sense because they were really old cottages, 300 years old or so, and being on the A40 it obviously had a great history. And It's quite unusual for me though because most of my friends were either kids of farmers or they lived in new houses. So I grew up being a bit shy of the difference of having an old house. So was, I never actually admitted to any of my friends that I lived in, in this old place. It wasn't big or grand, it was tiny. You know, was tiny little workers' cottages.
0: So when you were walking home from school, would you sort of throw them a dummy and, and go down yeah, the street? Yeah, or I would just vanish. Vanish. You know, and so where's Jay gone? Oh, <laughs> it's gone. It's weird how he vanishes on on this street, you know. Yeah.
1: But I did, yeah, we went on school trips past my house and I'd always be looking in the opposite direction. But, you know, it was... I think it, looking back, it was interesting. My parents cared about design. You know, we had wooden floors. We had William Morris wallpaper, I seem to remember. And there was light in the house. And it was a nice mixture of really old and sort of, I suppose, contemporary-ish finishes. So I grew up with that. My mum was also really resourceful always. We were always finding things. Like <laughs> So Whitney, there was, um, Whitney is the town that I grew up in. There was a really fantastic old Art Deco cinema that went the way of many others in the 80s and it went and became a nightclub. And somehow or other, my mum got hold of the cinema curtains, you know, the huge cinema curtains that used to go back, and she um, made curtains for the house out of them. So oh, she wow. was pretty resourceful, still is actually. So we grew up with this, I guess, mentality of finding and making and yeah. change, adapting things to make your environment better. Yeah. But it was very much a sort of, I guess, dark floors, white walls, plants sort of pre-70s so did that inform your journey into design I don't know exactly whether it was that but my love of tinkering in the shed on a rainy day and making things and feeling that you know through your own endeavors you can change the world around you
0: mm.
1: made me realize that I had to go to college that plus Whitney was really boring mm-hmm. and I needed to get I really had that desire to get to um, a city. <laughs> Yeah. Either on the bus to Oxford or get to London, ideally, which is what I did for university. So those those forces were, I guess, the ones that drove me to come to London in, I think it was 89, and I've been here ever since.
0: And how did you meet your business partner?
1: I met Ed Barber, I think it was actually pretty much the first day at the Royal College. We were, we were put on desks next, next to each other. And, um, you know, what I think we were both youthful cynics and ambitious people we were really different we were re- much probably more different then than we are now we were, what was the caricature then tell me um, Ed had already travelled a lot and I really hadn't I think by the time I was <laughs> 18 I'd been on one flight I'd spent my life wanting to get on a plane and so we were really different you okay. know, I, I desperately wanted to do it but he had already done it but I don't know we just got along and uh, it really felt for a while like it was us versus the college you oh, know, did it? Mm, and at the time, the college was having a difficult time, particularly in architecture and interiors. So Ed went for some time into the photography department and I went to the furniture department. And then after the first term, we just met these guys who wanted to do a restaurant in South Kensington. And we got chatting and one thing led to another and we actually got the job. So suddenly we find ourselves with zero experience yeah. building something real for real people and it It just took over our lives, actually, and we learned so much in that period of working on these real-life projects for real people with real money and real-time pressures. And during that period, we not only learned how to build and design, but we also learned how to collaborate, not just with contractors and clients and stuff, but also with one another. And I think that those formative early years was a parallel education to the RCA and actually was the thing that, sort of created everything we've done since. Those really tough years
0: and those long nights. What's your view on education then? Do you think that if you're learning design or architecture, there should be that very practical element in there? I think so. I mean, education should be about
1: enrichment and, Mm -hmm. and expanding your mind and understanding the world. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to become something at the end of it, I suppose. But certainly if you're one of those people who wants to create or make or build, you can't beat that sort of flying by the seat of your pants Scary bit of starting anything up yourself, which you must know, I'm sure yourself from starting your own I think business. a lot of
0: people do in the workplace, don't they? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, people always say, "Oh, I don't know how you can work for yourself," mm. you know, because well, you never know what's around the corner. But I always feel like if you're actually steering your own ship, at least you can see what's coming on the horizon. If you're mm. actually employed, it's a different kettle of fish, isn't it? Because you're mm. always just relying on the check coming in every month and. Mm. I don't know, I'd feel less secure about that. I'd feel like I was driving blind,
0: actually. Yeah, I I get that. And also, I I think in every job, really, when you're starting out, I mean, if I think about the people that we employ, they mostly come from all sorts of different arts backgrounds, and then we teach them how a state agency works. And so, of course, in those first months, they are driving completely blind and that is very formative and and you're surviving on your nerves aren't you yeah and the same thing is true when you're starting a company yeah it's actually terrifying really but it has worked out yeah <laughs> it has worked <laughs> out so let's just talk about your relationship with Ed for a moment because yeah. you've obviously made that work over many many years yeah. I mean I'm the same I'm in business with a friend of mine essentially from school Albert yeah. Hill and To me, it seems you just get by on being able to trust each other implicitly because you've got that level of understanding and those shared experiences that you've been through. Yeah. How do you describe your relationship with him? How have you made it this far? Well, I think trust is a really big part of it. In a way,
1: it's it's so well established that you don't even have to give it a second thought. Hmm. I describe it as a fraternal relationship. You know, he and I are both one of three boys and he's the middle, I was the oldest. But, you know, I think meeting in our early 20s as we did. And having both of us relatively recently left that family behind, I suppose, maybe we replaced something that was lost for each one of us in that sort of fraternal way. And I think, I think being in business on your own, is, especially in the creative world, is incredibly tough and can lead to sort of neuroses and megalomania and delusions of grandeur and all those things. And one of the great things, I think, about being in partnership is that you keep each other's feet on the ground. And apart from anything, it's good to be able to talk about the stuff that's worrying you, isn't it? Definitely. And I, you know we've seen our contemporaries from the RCA, some of them, and others too, who have gone off on their own and then become different people rapidly because of this thing of needing to be the persona of the brand themselves. And When there's two of you, that doesn't happen. Yeah, People don't really understand it either. People really don't understand how partnerships in design work because they always think well one of is a bean counter and the other one's the kind of artist <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't work like that we're lucky that we sort of taper in and out well
0: that's interesting so if, if a new project comes in mm. how does it work between the two of you what will actually physically happen we normally just sit down together and talk about it mm. and somehow else, out of somewhere
1: an idea lands on the table you know whether it's sketched or just spoken and then it's like lighting a fire you know the kindling is everybody else's excitement about it. And then you, like, take the smouldering kindling down to the workshop and you translate that into an object or even a rough one in foam or something, you know, from a sketch. And then we all sit around it again and it could change completely at that point. But it really is, um, it's always incredibly conversational. But it mm. relies on the energy in the room. And I think that's one of the things that's been really hard about the lockdown period. I think for the first six months, probably, we thought it was going okay. But we realised that we were sort of problem solving rather than creating. You know, we needed to get the sort of magic, I suppose, of being together and talking about ideas. Yeah. Not just us, but with the team too. So that's how our process works. Okay. It's very rare that one of us will take a project on our own. It's not as much fun apart from anything.
0: Yeah. Could you just explain the various aspects of the business? Because it's its yeah. a many-headed beast, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, it's quite appropriate, isn't it, that
1: we've got Medusa when we're talking about <laughs> buildings we're talking about. But uh, yeah. So we started working on architectural projects sort of restaurants and houses and so on but not new build you know what you can in london sort of adapting buildings and we started designing the fixtures and fittings for our projects and then the loop table came from one of the projects that we designed in south kensington you know that just needed a low level coffee table for a bar area and we were really interested in making furniture for our projects but we were limited in the resources that we had in the studio. We didn't have much, just a white card and cutting in a you who know, cutting mat and scalpels from making our architectural models. So we started making furniture out of those materials. or well, not furniture, but models of it, you know. So the loop table came from simply having those white card around. So that was how we got to meet Chris McCourt at Windmill and Isocon. And then Capellini discovered the table. So suddenly we found ourselves not just doing architectural interiors, but also doing furniture and product design and at the time in that point in the early 90s people just didn't understand that you could do those two things in the UK I mean if we'd been in Italy it wouldn't have been a problem because architects did furniture and it was always one you know it was the vision of the architect's grand vision for everything but in London at the time people were just completely confounded so we decided at that point to separate our furniture and product stuff and our architecture and interior stuff so we mm-hmm. we started Universal Design Studio in 2001 as an RIBA architecture practice, and kept Barbara as um, for furniture and product, and then that went really well actually. And I guess unconstrained by our authorship, Universal built up quite a reputation really, really quickly. Doing you know new stores for Stella McCartney when she first started, and the pharmacy with Damien Hurst. Lots of really interesting projects, but m- much more where there was a personality involved. So we acted as collaborators to sort of with those creatives okay. to develop something. So it wasn't it didn't have to be controlled by us. It didn't need to have a barbaroscopy feel or approach. It was much more about collaboration. Meanwhile barbaroscopy continues to work, you know, separately, designing things which really do feel authored by us. And then finally after the Olympics in twenty twelve, we anticipated that we'd get tons of work in from the from what, So what the, did you what did you do at the Olympics? We designed the Olympic torch. Which is pretty cool. Which is <laughs> which ran around the country for Seems like an eternity, it felt
0: like. Well, just, I mean, what, what was that like to get that project? Cause that, that, oh, man, it well, was that amazing. Must, yeah, I mean, yeah. amazing to get it, but also then you think, well, we've got to get this right. Well, that was a classic case of sleepless
1: nights. It was almost like yeah. the beginning again, because we were really um, punching above our weight, or whatever the expression is. You know, we went in, there were a 1,000 firms from around the world submitted, and then they went down to 50 and then they they did this big thing at the Design Council where they got everybody in, and there was another to twenty five, and finally we got down to the last five. And We were by far the youngest designers.
0: Okay,
1: I mean even then we weren't even that young, you know. I think when was that? Twenty twelve, so it was twenty ten. So I was late thirties. So yeah. but still, we were definitely the uh, the young the Mavericks. Protect, the Mavericks, yeah. So we won it, which was incredible. They really they really kept us hanging on for a really long time, whilst they really made sure that we could deliver it. Okay. Of course, we weren't at all sure that we could at the time, but they believed us in the end. <laughs> and it was incredible to win. And then, of course, the you know, what to use one of our friends' expressions, you wake up in the morning and bang your head on the RSJ of reality. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then we had to scramble to get, get them made, 11,000 of them made. And then, uh, oh, wow. the Olympic people had left it. They'd forgotten they needed a torch. It was only when they started planning the relay that they realised they needed a torch. So they were running 18 months late. Okay. So normally the torch designers get three years to do it, and we had eighteen months. So, but we did it, and it was amazing. And yeah, it re- it's one of those things. It's great to.
0: It's pretty much the only way you can represent your country in design. It's yeah, it's an absolutely brilliant project. I, yeah. I must admit, what would keep me awake at night is them all going out. Well, yeah, that was it.
1: Yeah, it and was terrifying, absolutely yeah. terrifying. But luckily, it didn't. And it's the best performing torch in Olympic history. How how does that that? come about then? So well, brilliant design, obviously. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) Anyway, so the Olympics was bloody great and we'd anticipated lots of phone calls afterwards. Yeah. And so we thought that it would be a good idea to do what we did with Universal, but more with technology-focused design projects. So we set up a company called MAP, MAP Project Office, or MAP for short. And that was designed to sort of formalise something we had been doing already, which was consulting with bigger companies especially tech companies japanese companies and us based companies where maybe there was a little bit more strategic thinking and again you know probably removed from this authorship that Ed and I have with our other work it was something again that was more about collaboration and you know working with a big organization which means compromising really and understanding how to get an idea through to the end. So we set up MAP, and lo and behold, the phone did ring after 2012, and MAP took off as a standalone business, unencumbered by me and Ed, I guess.
0: (laughs) Nicely put. (laughs) Let's move on to your three choices.
1: Yes. Well, they're kind of slightly odd, but I thought I should try and do something which was, um, you know, captured the urban, the suburban, and the country pile. Okay. Um, not, not in that order, but I figured it was kind of interesting to think of it in those terms, especially for your website, which offers the, all of those locations, really, doesn't it, in a very nice way.
0: Like it. That's, That's a good, good
1: idea. Plug, good plug. That's a good plug for a modern house.
0: So the first one you've chosen is the Palace of Knossos yeah. on the Greek island of Crete, built in around 1900 BC. Tell us about this. Why have you chosen this one?
1: Well... One of the things about growing up in Oxfordshire on a rainy day was there wasn't a hell of a lot to do. And once you'd tinkered around in the shed as much as you could, you'd, it was also possible to get on the bus and go to Oxford. So as a child, I spent a lot of time in the Pitt Rivers Museum, the Oxford University Museum, which is brilliant, but also the Ashmolean Museum, which is, well, I think, one of the first kind of big collections of featuring a lot of stuff that was taken from the Palace of Knossos. Right. And actually, it was only last year, in the break in lockdown, we managed to get to Crete and actually went to visit it. I'd always been interested in it because I'd seen you know, a lot of the artefacts that had been taken stroke plundered from it in, in, in uh, the Ashmolean. But Sir Arthur Evans, who had been the curator of the Ashmolean in the late 19th century, had discovered the ruins of Canossus. And as well as being an amazing place as a sort of country retreat, it was actually incredibly ancient. So actually it was first, I think, built in 6,000 B.C., And I suppose, in a way, it was like a little London. It was like this sort of hub of trade from Turkey to Greece to Syria and an incredible place to have a uh, a palace. (laughs) But one of the things that I suppose really attracted me to it was having visited it, was the way it had been reconstructed because it was, uh, you know, it was controversial because Arthur Evans had sort of discovered everything, discarded a hell of a lot of stuff, and then had had his own sort of academics view of what it should be and then built it in that manner so they used a lot of reinforced concrete to rebuild the palace a number of things that are interesting to me about the palace coinciding with the fact that we ed and i have just been working with axor the tap company in germany and so we've really been preoccupied with let's say the kind of machine side of architecture you know the supply of the services and the palace of Knossos was quite an amazing example of that really because it had well, it had running water, had three different sources of water. This is so bloody old to be, you know, this advanced. And they'd had, it had terracotta pipes, which were sort of tapered and fitted together and bound with rope underground that delivered the water. And I think it was one of the first places in the world, well, first ever places that actually had running water, but also had, I think it had a flushing loo. Yeah, the Queen's Megaron Chamber has the first ever known flushing loo and a draining bathtub, I mean you know all mod cons yeah and it's set it's set up in the hills about five kilometers from the coast so it benefits from sort of coastal breezes the other thing that's really interesting about it relating to our time is that when you approached the palace you had to wash before you went in because there were as there are today you know pandemics it's a bit like coming in this building it's a lot like that, yeah. Yeah, I noticed you um, having a shower, actually, when you arrived, which thought was quite novel, quite unusual. But anyway, I think the other thing I love about it is the feeling that humans haven't changed very much. Yeah. The fact that the spaces felt very common to us now. I mean, they obviously loved the idea of an approach. There was a sort of ceremonial promenade that leads you up to the building. It's tree-lined. It was not fortified, that's the other thing. So these Minoans were apparently peace-loving folk And, you know, the building feels really approachable. The spaces are lovely. And actually, to this day, the pieces of built-in furniture, which I don't mean kitchens, but I mean thrones. And, (laughs) you know, those sort of bits of built-in furniture, which, you know, which you can sit on. And it's amazing how that type of experience of visiting can just transport you through the ages. But you just realise our needs and wants and desires are the same as they were 8,000 years ago. So I guess that's why I chose that. And I would settle for that site, at least, for a country retreat i think yeah that would do yeah Yeah, it's nice and hot you know the breeze is brilliant yeah food's
0: pretty good so arthur evans did pretty well there i think there's a quote from tadao ando the japanese architect which i've always really liked and he said i like ruins because what remains is not the total design but the clarity of thought the naked structure and the spirit of the thing can you identify with that there's something there is something really romantic about a ruined yeah building isn't there
1: Yeah, absolutely. There is, because you you can mentally reconstruct it, which is, I guess, one of the reasons that Arthur Evans gets a bit of flack, because of his reconstruction, sort of takes that away, because you're looking at it rather than imagining it. But you really can, and I think there are other quirks of the building as well, which, for me at least, ancient buildings, I either think of Stonehenge or the Parthenon or something, you know. And what's really unusual about this palace is that the columns feel the wrong way around. So rather than tapering up, they taper down. You know, the, so the, thinner the, at the bottom. Thinner at the bottom, yeah. yeah. And this is apparently from the fact that before they started building with stone, they used cypress trees. And if they placed the cypress trees the natural way up, they would even if they'd been cut, they still grew. So the branches then regrew, and obviously that's pretty hectic. It must be like um, <laughs> what's that kids' book? Oh, yeah, where the wild things are. Where the wild things so are. So it reminds me of where the wild things are, this notion of all your columns growing. Yeah. So anyway, they flipped them the other way around, partly to stop the columns from growing, but also apparently it helped with the way that the building reacted to earthquakes. And I think
0: at 1700 BC there was a whopping earthquake that flattened the place, and they, so they rebuilt it. I gather that the reason that it, it was destroyed after the earthquake was because all the bottles of olive oil smashed and then caught fire and wow. the thing burnt down wow I think, I think i thought you were think, gonna think... say that olive oil smashed and it sort of kind of greased it up so it just <laughs> slipped over which is possible oh, so. right, yeah okay slipped off its hill as usual i'm doing a house refurbishment at the moment and yeah. my favorite part of every project is when you stripped it right down and you just see the bones of the building yes and that's sort of what you're describing isn't it there's something really great yeah. about just space contained within structure you know, I love
1: that bit. Don't you find it funny as well when you're doing projects, how the spaces kind of contract and grow at different stages? They do, so you, don't they? You know, you strip it out and it's like, oh, it's massive. And yeah. then it comes back in again. And then you put furniture and so on and it, and it expands again. It's, it's really weird how that
0: Yeah, for, how that you really happens. need furniture to give the space the context. And it does feel much bigger. If you get the furniture yeah, right, it exactly. always feels much this bigger. This is a plug for me now, isn't it? Um, Yeah, one could use Jay's services for this. (laughs) Barbaroscopy.com. It's the home of all good furniture. Well, talking about decoration then, in the palace, I mean, I've I've seen some dolphins swimming around and things like that. Tell us about some of the decorative elements of it.
1: Well, this is the thing. So Arthur Evans reconstructed that. Again, that was the Queen's bathroom, we believe. But it has an amazing frieze of dolphins. And in fact, there's a lot of painted friezes everywhere. And so she had this frieze over her bath. But it transpires that actually it's more likely that that freeze was on the floor above pre-earthquake. So, again, this is another example of the sort of early 20th century reimagining of how life was all these years ago. Instead, it works. I mean, it is. I suppose what it does is it transports you to a time that links then with now. But you could also imagine that being an amazing interior even to this day. So it's not, it hasn't really aged. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it has, obviously, physically aged. But it's... uh, No, it's incredible to think that that could have been there, the sort of celebration of water and the natural world, and that way would be completely appropriate for a bathroom. Yeah. It's really stunning. And I think the thing that was interesting about it for me is that so many people at that period, well, I mean, I guess in the 19th century, but also in the early 20th century, and particularly architects, you know, would travel to the classical world for inspiration. And in a way, it's kind of ironic at this period when the Europeans are building the modernist world in concrete, Arthur Evans is then using concrete to reimagine the classical world. Uh, So there's this very weird kind of interplay between these kind of the worlds of inspiration versus the worlds of reinforced concrete and then how they mash up in the Palace of Knossos. And Corbusier was one such young, fascinated architect who fell in love with the classical language of architecture and took so much of it from there for inspiration for the way he saw the future of the
0: world. That's a beautiful segue, Jay. Have you done this before? I have. i with you, yeah. Um, (laughs) So your second choice is um, Villa Savoie in Poissy, designed by Le Corbusier, between 1929 and 1931. For those who haven't been there, it's it's in a sort of suburb of Paris, isn't it? Tell us about this one. Why have you chosen it? Well, I chose this one because, I mean, I visited
1: it for the first time when I was doing my um, Erasmus exchange, and I think it was... Before it had been reopened, I don't know how we got in. Anyway, I was with my French friend who tended to just do things recklessly anyway, so we probably broke in, I don't know. But (laughs) it's an incredible monument, actually, to modernism. And really, it sits like a white sculpture in the middle of the woodland. And it was built for the Savoir family, who I think were insurance brokers. And I think Mr Savoir fancied himself as a bit of a sponsor of contemporary living and commissioned Corbusier to do this building and it wasn't an easy process. In fact the project it was compromised from the beginning. It went way over budget. Always Um, do. Always do. Yeah, (laughs) don't tell me that. But nonetheless, Corbusier fought to deliver this sort of embodiment of his five points of architecture, which was tremendously successful really. And I think other things which I like about it, at that period the world was all about the automobile Mm. and, and the car represented the future Mm. and actually that thinking of course then scarred our urban environments post-war in the most horrendous way because it possibly wasn't the right thing to do it almost never was and and so many of the things he did beautifully here didn't translate well as they became urban directives anyway here it did work and the approach to the building which was obviously designed for the driver because the Savoies lived in Paris and they used this as their weekend retreat the driver would drive them up there in their big Citroen, and then the whole plan of the building was sort of dictated by the turning circle of the car so that the drive as you approach you could sort of regard this amazing kind of temple of modernism uh, with your friends in the back I think they have <laughs> really already had a few glasses of champagne on your way out from Paris they were the only people in the area that had a car as well so there would have been a huge amount of local sort of excitement of this approach okay, and right. then the the uh, driver could then pull in using the turning circle that Corbett designed under his Pilotti you know the raised ground floor the first floor park up before the car parked actually of course the owners can get out and walk into the entrance of mm-hmm. Le Savoye. meanwhile the chauffeur can park the car in his apartment at the back it's all been really well thought of and the other thing is the the ground floor is painted green as well so it completely disappears into the woodland behind which gives you the feeling that the the tiny little columns that the whole thing sits on a it was almost implausibly light, you know. So the living quarters are on the first floor, raised first floor. And as you walk in, you know, I think the first thing that you see, and again, a bit like the Palace of Canossus, is the is a washstand, wash stand, a washing basin. And I remember thinking, what the heck? Ha- why is this here? I had no idea. As a student, when I visited it, I was thinking, this just doesn't make sense. Someone's knocked the bathroom down and left the basin standing there. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, a bit like we were talking before about the time of pandemics in ancient Greece and ancient Crete. This was a time when, because of this incredible urbanisation that had happened, as in London, during the Industrial Revolution, pandemics were rife. You know, people have tuberculosis and rickets and all sorts of horrible things. And so there was this, I think, modernism really grasped that notion of cleanliness and health. Mm. And the signs of those were distributed all through this project. So you've Mm. got a wash basin on the way in, so you can cleanse your hand-stroke soul on the way in. And then walking up, like a number of corpse houses, you know, it's all about the ramp. Again, it's about this journey, the promenade. So you walk up the ramp to the ground floor, which is obviously has amazing views but also has some outside space straight away and again continuing the ramp up to the roof you then have a you know an active roof
0: which is one of his i think that was the fifth of his yeah yeah well you you mentioned the five points of architecture we should probably just explain what those are so the first one is the idea of it being on piloti or raised up on columns yeah the second one is it has a roof garden so the idea there is that you reclaim the area of land that you've built on so nature's sort of unaffected Um, The third one is a completely free plan, so no load-bearing walls. The fourth one is long horizontal windows for light and ventilation. And then the fifth one is free facades that are basically just a skin for the walls and the windows and aren't load-bearing. Yeah. So does does all that contribute to a successful building? Yeah. Well, of this one, yeah. yeah, I mean, it did.
1: I mean, success is something we should talk about in a minute. Yeah. But, um, I mean, of the sculpture, it does. You know, it's an absolutely stunning object. It's interesting because it does, it sort of sits so well in so many ways at that particular moment in history where we're thinking about the person more than the environment. It's about your health and well-being. You know, it's about being able to get sunshine, Mm. about the health benefits of sun. um, About, I guess as well about this idea of being removed from the city. Mm. And I think I understand that Charlotte Perrion actually did some of the furniture there. I haven't actually personally, I didn't see it there. You know, what I saw was some fixed furniture again. I always feel that's an interesting thing when the architect fixes furniture. Yeah, it So, you know, it's like, well, that's one less decision for you. And I think he was (laughs) actually physically sick when he saw what the Savoirs actually purchased, the furniture they chose to put in there. Are you kidding? Yeah, of course, because it was like the classic, kind of, you build a modernist temple and fill it full of bourgeois crap. Yeah. And that's what they did. Yeah. I think he was distraught, you know, but he did have his moments of, you know, the sort of table... That you can see when you come in, that's fixed, and then upstairs, as part of the sort of health and well-being section, is the kind of tiled bath area and a sort of almost like, a chaise long that you can lie on, having been having had your soul cleansed. Yeah. Although talking about cleansing your soul, uh, people also say that it was sort of an elaborate shag pad, really, for sort of swinging parties. I think <laughs> when they first moved in.
0: <laughs> so, I don't really know what type of people they were, but rumor has it. Well, yeah, well, hence all the washing facilities, maybe. I well, don't I know. guess. I guess that's what it. I guess. Yeah. Well, there was, speaking of which, obviously, in this in these COVID times, we're also having to think about this stuff as well. Yeah. And you guys are well, designers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Not swingers, but washing. That's right. Yeah. What, have you already found that this pandemic has affected the kinds of decisions you're having to make? And you know, I, mean, I was thinking in design, mm. perhaps this means that we're going to have maybe more shadow gaps because obviously skirtings collect dust in you know, a small example or you know more push catches or you know doors that open with the foot or well I don't, one thing that did occur to me actually the other day is just how i don't know if you remember when we one
1: well certainly when i was a kid in the 70s there were still remnants of pre-war interiors mm. so especially things like think about the kiosk at the cinema which was behind glass with a little hole in it so I think these are throwbacks to the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic where interiors had to respond to that. And, you know, offices were very cellular. They had been before, but mm. certainly in the middle of the century from the 20s, 30s onwards, officers were incredibly cellular. And partly, and maybe that was because of the noise of the typewriters, but partly it was maybe have been just to sort of keep your distance from your colleagues. Yeah. You know, I could really see that going back to, mm. to that, you know, people being behind glass to be served. So on Mm. a grander scale, in terms of planning, I can see that it's going to have an impact. In terms of the way that we're working on projects, I think most of our manufacturers see the end of it. And people are always planning now for a future, which is post-pandemic, which probably doesn't really refer to it or need to refer to it anymore. Mm. I do quite like the idea of having a kind of cloakroom vestibule on the way into a house to wash your hands and, you Mm. know, just from coming in from work or from school to do that as a matter of course. Yeah, agreed. It's yeah. quite a nice
0: thing to do. Well, every country house has a boot room, doesn't it, with yeah. a basin in it, so i must take your shoes off, and that, that kind of makes sense. And he's writing that like down for the barn, actually. The, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Design in boot room. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. We should say yeah. that Jay's just bought a house through the modern house. Yes. On the well, explain why
1: or how? Is it how right? it happened? Your I mean, podcast pinning, came you You're text. pinning it on me, aren't you? Yeah, I am. Because I was just researching the podcast, and then um, lo and behold, up pops this barn. <laughs> And uh, yeah, the rest is history. So, in our own, thanks, thank you, thanks to you. <laughs> it's the most expensive podcast I've ever had to do in my life. It's really good news, but you'll find you'll get very muddy. Yeah. Well, I don't think that the Savoie's worried too much about the mud. No, no. quite. To the point of whether Villa Savoie was a success, uh, I think, of course, it was a success because, in a way, it's a built manifesto for the rest of the century for, for modernism. But practically, it was a disaster. Mm. It was freezing cold. The whole thing rattled in the wind. They never actually moved in, the Savoirs, because the they, well, I mean, maybe they used their child as an excuse, but he was too sickly and he just got ill every time he stayed there. So very rapidly it fell into disrepair, as far as I know. And actually they were on the point of taking Corbusier to court for project overruns and budget overruns and, you know, in their view, the failure of the project. And then the Second World War broke out, luckily, for Corbusier not for anybody else and he got away with it so obviously the war broke out and actually it became for a while it was occupied by the Germans and then subsequently the Americans used the grounds as a base and then after the Second World War it, it fell into disrepair and for some time was used as a hay storage facility <laughs> for the local farmers I think as far as wow, I can gather
0: that's amazing isn't it
1: <laughs> there was a petition to sort of save it I think Corbusier was still alive whilst the petition was happening and um yeah, they repaired it, and it and it's now owned, I think, by the French state. It's a tremendous. You, everyone should visit it. It's mm. a tremendous place.
0: It's a manifesto, isn't it? Really, yeah. in the end, that the, these these kind of monuments of the international style, they they sort of we need, we needed them, but as you say, they haven't always functioned that well over the years, and so many of them yeah. have been rescued.
1: <laughs> yeah, haven't they? They have. I mean, it's funny actually when I think about it because you know it's such a vision of the future. And like you have to applaud that type of vision and that energy, don't you? But Corbusier said that the past was his only master. And so it, he often grounded his work in, you know, authenticated it in a way by, by his learning of, ancient, of the ancient world. Yeah. And um, so I love that interplay between Arthur Evans using reinforced concrete in Crete at the same time that Corbs using those classical principles and concrete to build Villa Savoie a You can't imagine two more different worlds united with that kind of connection.
0: I completely agree. So I've spent lockdown, in fact, the last year and a half or so writing a book, which is going to be published in October Mm. um, through Penguin Life. And it's really all about how good design from whatever era all subscribes to the same principles, essentially. They're kind of unwritten principles, but they're all the same thing. They're all about a connection to nature and and how you consider space and and how you harness light in the right way and the materiality. Mm. And I I really like the the choices that you've made because it's showing that actually these same principles apply, whether it's from, you know, 2000 BC or whenever, or whether it's from the 1930s. Yeah. Let's move on to your third and final choice, Jay, which is Trellick Tower. So this is obviously a 1960s building designed by Ono Goldfinger, yeah, um, who's a bit of a character. But tell us about this one. Well, this one's, I mean, we are going through a, a crazy romp through
1: architecture, aren't we? Architectural <laughs> history. And I'm trying really hard, like a, like a bad writer, to try and make these tenuous links. Go yeah, cool. on, what's uh, the link here? Well, the, well, there's not really much. I mean, we're back at, in Paris in the 20s. So yeah. we're back in the 20s, and Goldfinger's a student, and he, he's hanging around with Mies van der Rohe and Corb. Um, I think... Goldfinger, from all accounts, was pretty taken by Corb's thinking and certainly his Towards New Architecture book and his principles and moves to the UK and is one of those people who have taken the founding principles of modernism and had the opportunity to use them on a grand scale. And I guess the most important thing to say, actually, about at this point is that I, I used to live in a flat in Trelig Tower. Um, I mean, I'd never lived anywhere like that in my life, mm. and I, by, by a country mile.
0: Yeah, right. You know, it's, a, it's a long way from the 300-year-old the, um, cottage, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it really was, and it was incredible. The, just in terms of how, what it was like to live in, it had had a really rough patch. I mean, I think it was known as Terror Tower for a while yeah. in the 70s. It was finished in 72, and Goldfinger had petitioned the council. Kensington and Chelsea, that's right, council, took it over, and they didn't put um, a concierge on the ground floor, and so it became a kind of place for squatting and rough sleeping, yeah, and prostitution and drugs. And, and it was a rotten place to live uh, for a really long time. And I felt, think, looking back, you know, terribly sorry for the people who lived there, because it was just a mess. And which is a terrible shame, because the building was is a piece of genius. The design is actually incredible. The thought that's gone into it. Anyway, by the time that I... Moved in. There was a 24-hour concierge downstairs, so you buzzed in, buzzed out. Security was much better. It was still pretty dodgy. I mean, Mm. you could get, if you were inclined to get any type of drug that you wanted, you could get it there. And you know, I think there was a prostitute on our floor who unfortunately got murdered. Wow, that's that's quite something. It's actually terrible. Yeah. So it was a rough place to live, but you know, it was smart. So the way that Goldfinger designed the building, the orientation of it is great. The way it sits at the top of Coburn Road, it's like a sort of huge. For those people who haven't seen it or are familiar with it, it's like a, like a really tall, cigar case shaped building. So very narrow, very tall, and its narrowness permits each flat to have at least two aspects. And it, we were lucky to have a studio on the end, so we had easterly views too. So you got the sunrise, and then from the balcony you could look sort of southwest, so you could see the sun setting. So the whole building is set up on this principle of moving all the noisy stuff, so the lift, the bin chutes, the services, so the boiler room and so on, off onto a separate tower, which then links across to the main building every third floor. And the reason it links across every third floor is because the lifts were slow. And so if you lived on the top floor, it'd take forever if the lift stopped at each floor. So they stop every third floor. And then the flats either go step down, go straight in or in our case, stepped up. So you have this really amazing, um, clever section where the flats kind of stack to one corridor. The corridor then goes back to the lift. The lift goes back down. So it's super smart. And also there's that idea of motion and movement through uh, going back a little bit to Villa Savoie, I suppose, this idea of moving through a volume, otherwise known as going upstairs, (laughs) uh, going upstairs um, and into a really light, airy, Space where you can look up to Hampstead and look look down to Battersea, or you know I don't know it's just great. And every flat has at least big windows, and every flat has a balcony. a Few drawbacks though, I guess, were that it swayed in the wind. I mean, I'm talking in the past tense. I'm sure it still sways in the wind. Yeah. So on a windy day, if you ran a bath, it would actually be moving as if you were on a boat or something. The water okay. sort of sloshing from one side to the other, which was. Yes, it's slightly unnerving. And they haven't got their upside-down columns like they had in uh, Knossos, so it's yeah. a bit worrying. Then the other thing, the other highlight is a foggy day. is mm. always interesting. So you wake up in the morning, pull your blind up, and it just looked like you were at 37,000 feet, like getting up to landing. Oh, really? The airport, yeah, you can't see a bloody thing. Well, they're
0: called a P-Super, isn't it? Yeah.
1: They were, they were really big back in the day, the P-Super, so I can't imagine what it must have been like in the yeah then. But, yeah, it was interesting. Firework night was another highlight, where the fireworks yeah. exploding outside your bedroom window. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's an amazing place to live. And I think that so much of the language, the design language of that building, kind of came into our work early on. And it was a brilliant place to have a studio. I don't think I was really aware of it, the importance of it as a building when I first moved in. Do you think anyone was?
0: I think, not yeah. So, I mean, not no, so much, though, I mean, the, the
1: architecture hardcore brigade
0: mm. definitely were, you know, the fan club. But, but not, it's amazing how modernism has... Uh, really come into the public consciousness hasn't it it? in the last 15 20 years in a way that it just wasn't then
1: it's actually fascinating isn't it how that happened and i guess it takes time for people to settle i Mm. mean st paul's cathedral was hated when wren built it Mm. because they just thought what's this italian crap doing going up in london (laughs) they actually hated it they were going to burn it down again
0: yeah i think probably put off by the fact that they'd rather just suffered rather big fire but 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 in in the case of Trellick Tower, though, I mean, Goldfinger was a very divisive character, wasn't he? And he famously he gave his name to the Bond villain because Ian Fleming hated him so much. Yeah, because um, I think they lived. I think it was when Goldfinger was Road. building Willow Road. Yeah, it was. It, yeah, because he demolished. He demolished, I think, three
1: three houses on Willow Road, and and um, uh, Fleming was one of the sort of the residents. Yeah, who sort of petitioned against that happening and. um and he fell out with Fleming, so much so that Fleming cast him as the, as the baddie in his novel Goldfinger. And actually, Goldfinger tried to take him to court to um, prevent him from being called Goldfinger. And Fleming said, if you take me to court, I'm going to change the name of my character to Gold Prick. <laughs> so they decided to withdraw the, uh, the legal action funders. And, and I like uh, it. quite a funny story. You know, but you have a feeling in a way that you're floating in the air because you feel like when you're in those apartments you feel like you're the only one there because you're not aware of anybody else and I guess in a way that he tried to counteract that feeling of isolation of feeling like you're sort of floating in the sky by consolidating all of the sociable aspects of the tower and the development on the childhood estate he had social clubs and he put the laundrettes together and he had a kind of pharmacy and a gp surgery and so on on the lower ground sections with this idea of creating a sense of community through those amenities, which were then clustered together, so that when you are actually in your apartment, you could enjoy the solitude of feeling like you're a
0: bird in the sky. I'd love to just finish by talking a bit about your current home. Tell us where you live now and what was it like. We've moved four times in Broccoli,
1: and yeah, we about eleven years ago we bought a house on Manor Avenue, which is a really lovely street, one of those big streets in. London that has townhouses with trees doesn't really feel like it's changed that much since 1880 when it was built and we lived in it as it was for a really long time the people before us had been a teacher and an artist and the houses was a sort of a little bit like my house had been as a kid sort of I think they'd lived in it since 1973 and it was um you know it was great it just had that lived in quite cool slightly hippie feel and so we lived in it like that for a long time and then and it had a flat downstairs which we rented out and then five years ago we decided to unify the house again so we got rid of the flat and then connected the whole house back together again and i absolutely love it i really do and you know we've had three kids who have grown up in the house and grown up through multiple building projects constantly covered in paint moaning they've got splinters in their feet because we haven't painted the floors yet or polished them. you know what it's like and I love that kind of in a way that informality and that and the one good thing about building your own project is that everybody gets involved and everyone's really witness to the change and how it isn't impossible to right. radically change these buildings to work for you and Whilst there are a lot of staircases in those London townhouses, so 30% of the house is stairs in a way. It's good exercise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is Good that. exercise. And it's an ongoing project. Is it always ongoing? It's always ongoing, yeah. Because as you grow or as your circumstances change, as things improve, hopefully with work, you know, you can you look at things and think, oh, I wish I had done it that. I wish we'd had the money to do it like that when we first mm-hmm. did it. And so we're constantly finding ourselves reevaluating it and going back and changing things and... But I kind of enjoy that. It's a sort of bittersweet experience, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Very good, Jay. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you. Was it as good as the first one? I think it probably was, actually. Let's do it again. Yeah, let's do it. Third time lucky. Thanks again. All the best. (laughs) Thanks. A huge thank you for listening. As always, we really, really appreciate it. If you enjoy the premise of this podcast, you might be interested to learn about my new book, A Modern Way to Live which is all about how to use timeless design principles like space, light and materials to transform your living environment. It's based on my own personal experiences of home, from the house I grew up in to the many hundreds of places I've been lucky enough to visit, firstly as a writer at the World of Interiors and then as a founder of The Modern House. The book is being published by Penguin and is out on the 28th of October, but if you're listening before that, you can pre-order it via the Wardstones website. Search for A Modern Way to Live by Matt Gibbard. To hear about upcoming conversations with other eminent creatives like Jay Osgoby, please subscribe wherever you find your podcast so that you don't miss an episode. As always, you can find out more about The Modern House on our website, themodernhouse.com. This episode was produced by Caroline Hughes, and the executive producer was Kate Taylor for Feast Collective.